0: back to back because they don't think that works for them Uh, particularly atonement because they don't want to fast and then have a a holy day connected with it but uh, God says do what the heavens say and the heavens say that it doesn't matter and of course also he says that the day after the sabbath is Pentecost so that kind of blows the Jews out of the water because God specifically places the seventh Sabbath in our count, 49 days with the 50th day, which is a Sunday, and uh, that to me is just simply undeniable. So here we are, 50 days after the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread to keep the Pentecost. Pentecost has sometimes been called the Feast of the First Fruits. There's been a lot of confusion over who the first fruits are, exactly who they are comprised of, and when you get into some of the scriptures on it, people just go every direction you can name. Herbert Armstrong had different views of it at different times. At one time, he thought the 144,000 were the first fruits. At other time, he thought the innumerable multitude was included. And he kind of went back and forth on it. Uh, I'm not sure whether he was one of those that thought everyone had to be not only an Israelite, but a virgin. Uh, those theories have been given as well, which lets out most of us, not all of us. Uh, so, just who were they? What's this all about? What's he saying? Let's go back to Leviticus 23. Indeed, there are quite a few scriptures back in this section of the Bible which talk about bringing the first fruits of your harvest into God. Uh, you didn't have to bring that which came later necessarily, except the tithe, but you were to bring the first fruits that which was produced, which ripened first which was able to be taken, partaken of first. And that's why it was called first fruits. Now here in Leviticus 23, we have an exposition of the holy days and their order. And we'll drop down to uh, Pentecost in verse 15. Uh, you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheave of the wave offering, Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Some The Jews argue that uh, that was one of the holy days during the Feast of, of Passover, the first day or the last day of the Passover. Therefore, they believe that 50 days after that is Pentecost, which can be actually any day of the week, if you use a holy day, because... They can fall any time. But here he says you count seven Sabbaths. So it has to be starting with a weekly Sabbath, not an annual holy day. The weekly Sabbath is always the seventh day. And the day after is always Sunday or the first day. So when you count seven complete Sabbaths, the day after is the 50th or Pentecost. So you do this. And when it is done and you've counted to 50, you offer a new meal or meat offering unto the eternal. And you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the eternal. Now it's interesting that we completed the Passover season recently in which we went seven days uh, eating unleavened bread because at that time it represented sin. You didn't want any leavened bread, anything puffed up because it indicated self, vanity, ego, selfishness, puffed up in our own mind as to how important we are, in other words. So during that period of time, it represented sin of any kind. Now you come forward 50 days, and leaven represents righteousness. And in fact, Christ said the kingdom of heaven is as leaven and bread, and it will rise and it includes the whole earth. So, he made the righteousness of his kingdom uh, typed as leavening. So, out of the year, only seven days does leavening represent sin. The rest of the year, it represents the kingdom of God and righteousness. So, it's kind of interesting how he changes the meaning of it. So, this baked with leaven... Is the first fruits to the eternal. Now it wasn't necessarily here the very first things that ripened of your garden or your field or whatever the first fruits that were edible or ripe. This is loaves of bread that were offered and fine flour, not necessarily the first flour. Uh, Wheat might not have even been ripe, or whatever grain you used, uh, that may have been from last fall, or the spring wheat just coming. So it isn't necessarily first fruit, but it's baked of fine flour. Now, God did not want coarsely ground flour, because he does not want us to be coarsely ground Christians, if you will. He wants us to be refined in his way, beaten down small, so that we are small in our own eyes, and yet the leavening here represents the first fruits of the kingdom of God. So the leavening clear back here represents something that grows and grows from the fine flower to become and represent the first fruits. So there's a lot of symbolism all the way back here that we're going to see later on in the scripture that indicate these first fruits represent people. Uh, not just flower and not just something you did on a on a holy day, but something that meant something for the future. So when you read this way back in Leviticus It's talking about the future. It's talking about the kingdom of God inhabiting the whole earth. So this verse goes all the way through this age, the millennium, and the great white throne judgment until the kingdom of God is around the world, encompasses the whole earth. So he's setting prophecy here is what he's doing. and those other scriptures by Christ himself indicate that so they're baked with leaven because they will go around the world world eventually they are the first fruits unto the eternal we're going to find though that there is a limit to the first fruits the first fruits do not include Everyone who has ever lived who will be part of the kingdom of God all the way through the great white throne judgment. The first fruits are limited to a certain number of people we shall find. The kingdom of God indeed will go around the world and it will start with whom? We'll get to that later. But let's establish... That the first fruits are important to God, and they are to be finely ground, well prepared, and baked with leaven. Now, this is in the context of Pentecost. It's not in the context of Passover. Christ's sacrifice was ultimately for all people who would ever live. Every human being who was ever conceived will be part or have an opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God. So Passover represents that beginning. Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day represents the end of that when that plan is completely finished and everyone has had a chance. So Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and last... The last great day, the great white throne judgment, go beyond us. But I submit to you, the Pentecost is our feast. I'll show you that as we go on. It isn't for anybody else but those who are the first fruits. Nobody else is included. They will be part of the kingdom of God as part of the overall purpose and plan from Passover through the fall festivals. But there are only a certain number of the days that represent the church of God or the first fruits of God. And those three holy days that represent them and them only are Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, and Atonement we'll see that those three holy days are limited to those called of God to be firstfruits. The early spring days and the last fall days are for others. So that puts anyone who is included as a firstfruit into a pretty important category. Three holy days set aside just for them. We'll see that. So Pentecost is about the first fruits. You shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams as burnt offerings, and they'll be made as a sweet savor to the Eternal. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offering. So in the sacrificial system, each of the holy days had offerings that were given, meaning a little bit different things. But let's stick here with the theme of first fruits. The priest shall wave, verse twenty, them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the eternal. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the eternal for the priests. So those two loaves representing the first fruits are waved with the wave sheaf which was the first of the harvest to God as special to him and they were to be reckoned as holy now the sin offering and the other offerings up there were offered for sin they were offered as peace offerings as things that society needs but the two loaves represented the first fruits and they were to be holy doesn't say those other animals were sacrificed were to be holy but these were they shall be holy to the eternal for the priest and you shall proclaim on the self same day that it may be a holy convocation a commend, commanded assembly and here we are and no work and so on and then it shows how you're to be generous to others with what you reap from your fields. And I think that's important because these first fruits represented by these two loaves were Israelites that were given this uh, instruction. But it's instruction to those who will be the first fruits to be generous with what they have been given. Now as we see more and more who the first fruits are, are consists of, then we will see who is left that needs to be taken care of, provided for, and being generous with. So that is the end of that. Now let's go to Jeremiah. Uh, chapter two Jeremiah two. He had begun giving Jeremiah's message, and here in Chapter two he continues it. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Eternal, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness in the land that was not sown. So God's saying, I remember you when you were tender, you were childlike, You were obedient. You had wonderful attitudes. I remember that. And he says Israel was holiness unto the eternal. Now, remember those two wave chiefs were to be holy before God. And he was speaking to all of physical Israel when Leviticus 23 was given. So he says Israel was holiness. He had married Israel after that. And he says, and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend, offend God. Evil shall come upon them, says the Eternal. So even Israel itself was a type of the first fruits of what God would produce. And he offered a covenant of what? Marriage. Israel. And he indeed married Israel. But the Israel he remembered from her youth no longer was that. So he divorced her. Now I think there's a tie in here between Jeremiah 2 and Leviticus 23. Because Israel was a kind of first fruits to God and a marriage was involved and it included all of Israel at that time but Israel rebelled and she was no longer holiness but the firstfruits had to be holy, right? that wave sheep had to represent holiness and the holiness that Israel had exemplified was now gone. She was no longer worthy to be the bride of Christ, if you will. So, what happened? Christ divorced her. Because she couldn't be first fruits anymore. And Jeremiah goes on throughout his book to show the sins of Israel and how she was no longer in favor of God was no longer married to God but a woman of divorce now that's the first round of the first fruits and it at that point included all Israel but when the divorce came it included who? all of Israel they were no longer the bride of Christ they were no longer holy They were no longer set aside for a hurly purpose of being a bride. Now we're going to see this subject reintroduced in the New Testament, but it's going to be with different parameters. It won't be physical Israel anymore. It will be someone else. Someone else God is working with, and I'll give you a clue, it has to do with marriage. Marriage because his first marriage failed because of adultery with the nations of the world and the God of this world and all kinds of idolatry and sin. And they could not be the bride of Christ. We're going to see that he narrows it down when he offers a new covenant that includes marriage to someone else. And they too or to be holy. Now that should be enough of a clue to get us thinking along certain lines. Now, let's go to James 1. Here James is talking to the church. He wrote an epistle to the church scattered abroad. And part of what he says to them is in verse 16 Do not err, my beloved brethren. So he's speaking to people here who have been baptized. Uh, they would include all members of the church at that time. Uh, Jews and Gentiles, because it had been opened up to Gentiles in the meantime. So his beloved brethren included people of any and all races. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So he's speaking to church members here, and he is an apostle. And he says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Remember John 6, 44, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So we are begotten with the word of truth. It is the truth that we come to see that leads to repentance and baptism. And it is of that truth that we are ensconced in And becomes part of us, that leads to to baptism. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So speaking to the church here, not to all Israel, but to those who have been converted through the truth, he says we are a kind of first fruits. Now, what do you mean by a kind of first fruits? Well, ancient Israel was one kind who turned out to be disobedient and unholy and were cast aside as candidates for bride. But all kinds of creatures were created in the Garden of Eden, all kinds of animals and birds and fish and so on. But he says a kind of first fruits. We weren't the first thing created, we weren't the first people created. But those people whom he had created and that Israel whom he had started sinned and went away and were no longer firstfruits. So he says, we're a kind of firstfruits. We we're coming later, further down the road, so we aren't, weren't the firstborn or we weren't the first to ripen for harvest, perhaps. So we're a kind or a type of firstfruit." coming later down, because that status had been offered to James and to the church. So it was a kind of first fruit, after something had already passed that no longer was. So we are not, let's say then, the first opportunity at first fruits. We're kind of the second opportunity, if you will, in the church today, or since Acts 2. Let's go to Romans 8. Now, notice here, and we'll get to this later on when we get more specific about the first fruits, is that James calls himself and the church firstfruits, right? So... He was an apostle, and the apostles, we know, were going to be over all the twelve tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. Christ said that clearly. Now, all those apostles were not of the same tribe, and they weren't all of different tribes. Some tribes were not represented by the twelve apostles. And how do we know that? Because some of them were brothers. So if you have twelve, and there were twelve tribes, then those who were brothers were of physically of the same tribes. So all twelve physical tribes cannot be represented by the twelve apostles. Clear? There, Because, as we'll get back into Revelation later, some say that they had to be of a certain tribe, using Revelation 7, and... This is proof ahead of time, before we even get there, that not all 12 tribes are represented in the first fruits or in the kingdom of God. So that's the first clue. Now back to Romans 8. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. So there had been travail and pain from Adam and Eve's first sin all the way through until this was written. And I would say you could add to that since then, it has been groaning since he wrote this, and is still groaning today. Our nation is groaning pretty hard. It's just been sort of big turn loose of lockdown, not all lifted yet, and now they're causing curfews in some cities right now because of the burning and the looting and the rioting due to the death of a black man by a white man. Now it has come out today, I don't know whether you've seen it yet or not, But the white officer who put his knee on that black man for eight minutes and killed him knew the man. They had worked together at the same nightclub providing security together. The white officer had worked there after hours for 17 years. The black man for a lesser amount of time, but the woman who owned the club had hired them both. So the white man knew what he was doing, and he killed him on purpose. That is first degree murder. He knew him; he premeditated it. When the op- he hated him obviously, and when the opportunity came, he killed him. And that's causing our nation and the world to groan some more. We're in terrible times, and they're getting worse by the day. I don't know what the news that that white officer was acquainted with and had worked with that black man is going to have, but it could kindle a fire even hotter, because the man did it with malice of forethought, knowing what he was doing and to whom he was doing it. This is an evil world we live in. And it's still groaning. All right, let's go on down from there. Verse 23. Not only they who have lived before us have groaned, and the earth groaned in pain, not only they, but ourselves also. which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So he's saying here then that the Romans in the church of God, this is Paul in this case, not James, have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, ancient Israel, when God called them first fruits in Jeremiah 2, did not say first fruits of the Spirit, they were the first fruits of physical Israel. Who got turned down for sin? Now you have Paul referencing the new covenant, whereby the Holy Spirit came, and we're the first fruits of the Spirit. So they were the first fruits of the flesh; we're the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a whole different a whole different category, right? You produce fruit of the. Of the flesh before you're converted. Now you're supposed to be producing the fruit of the Spirit. Whole new covenant, whole new way of life. And we have hope as first fruits of the Spirit of what? Eternal redemption. So the first fruits have hope of salvation, of being changed, of being redeemed from this earth. Now let's go to Acts 2. This was a very momentous day, and it's the day that began what we just read about in Paul. The apostles were to stay in Jerusalem in chapter 1 of Acts until a time that they were to gather, and Christ told them when it was, and after he talked to them here, he was seen of them for 40 days. But they were to wait 50 days, uh, just as we read in Leviticus 23. We know it was 50 days because when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they had counted it, and it was 50 days after the Sabbath during Passover. So they were there with one accord in one place. Holy Convocation. They had all gathered together as God had commanded, And they were in one place. Now, God's people, even his firstfruits, to this day are scattered around the world. And they cannot, at this point, come together in one accord in one place. They don't know where the place is, and they don't even know where God is working yet. Most of them are still in confusion. They're still in a scattered state. So there's no way that they could fulfill chapter 2 of Pentecost in the way that he's stating here, as a holy convocation in one place. Now all those who had been listening and been true disciples of Christ knew where to go, and they knew what to do, and they were of the same mind, one accord, to be there on that day. Now, they didn't have an inkling of what was about to happen. They just knew they were to be together on that day in one place. There they were. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Monstrous, dramatic moment. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was sent in a visible manner. Remember Christ had told Peter, When you are converted, feed my sheep. So Peter was a disciple, he was a follower, but he was not truly converted. And it takes the Holy Spirit within you to create true conversion. So here the Spirit came not, at that point, by the laying on of hands. The ministry had not even been truly established, as twelve apostles set apart. But the church had not yet even been established until this day. So when the Holy Spirit first came to beget men, to become begotten sons of God, Through the conception of the Holy Spirit, it came as tongues of fire. A very dramatic filling of those people with the Holy Spirit. Now, later on, they baptized and laid hands on that they might receive the Holy Spirit. But here it came in a very, very dramatic fashion, so there could be no question about what had just happened. No question. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Paul refers to this when it had begun to be misused and abused later on in Corinthians and told them that everything had to be done decently and in order and not just everybody could stand up and speak in the middle of of a service. But God gave them utterance here. And I'm sure he didn't give them all utterance at once, so there was a babble of confusion. This was something God himself was doing, and he is not the author of confusion. And they're dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. So this was dramatic enough, loud enough, the wind, that it was noticed by those not probably in the room. And there were people all over who began to come. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. This didn't come now to physical Israel. didn't come to all Jerusalem. It came to those whom Christ had called and selected and it sat upon them. They were the ones converted. Now, this multitude heard the noise, heard what was going on, and came to see. Now, when we get down to the first fruits of the book of Revelation, we're going to see that that too is limited, but that many, many other people become aware of it and begin themselves to to work toward conversion. Just as here, as the apostles began to preach, as Peter began to preach, people began to believe and were converted and became part of the first fruits of the New Testament church. Now some are going to hear later on and they won't be part of the first fruits, but they'll be part of the crowd that gathers to hear Christ and his bride, and they'll be their children. So it's laid out in a similar fashion, not exactly the same uh, when you consider the fall holy days, but a similar occurrence. And they all were amazed and marveled because every man either spoke or heard in his own tongue. Because these weren't people who were learned. These were fishermen and tax collectors who didn't know all these languages. And here they were, speaking in all these languages, and people were hearing in their ears their own language. I wish I was that way. When I hear a Chinese speak or a German speak or someone, I might as well be talking to the wall because I don't understand a word you're saying. But here there was an absolute miracle and it wasn't the fire and the wind because that happened before they got here. It was everybody hearing and understanding in their own language. It was so absolutely confounding. They didn't know what to make of it. Cretes and Arabians, verse 11, we hear them speak in our tongue the wonderful works of God. This wasn't tongues as in Babel. This was tongues as in languages. Do you speak a foreign tongue, a foreign language? It's not Pentecostal babbling. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others just mocked. Ah, these guys have been drinking too much, and they're just babbling on. But now wait a minute, that didn't answer the question. If you drink a lot, does it make you speak foreign languages? No. It makes you speak your own language pretty badly. There's a difference. (laughs) They weren't just mumbling and muttering drunkenly, they were speaking foreign languages. Drunkenness does not accomplish that. People might not understand you if you're drunk, speaking your own language, but here they were understanding. And that was what was so important. You see, when you don't understand something, what do you do? You ridicule it. People are down on what they're not up on. If you're not up on it, you don't have it, you haven't studied it, you don't get it, then you're just down on it. the way people generally are. If you don't understand it, it can't be important. I don't understand it. It couldn't be important. Do we have any vanity or not? Mm -hmm. But Peter, standing up, lifted up his voice and said to them, You men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, spoke to everyone, Be this known to you. These are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, after all. It's not five o'clock, much of anywhere at that point. And then he tells them, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And notice what else he says. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon and blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And whoever calls on God will be saved. Now, this is very interesting that Peter tied this with Joel 2. Because Joel 2 refers to the first month, the time of the former and latter rains. It also says after that that he will pour out his spirit, which is the part that uh, Peter quotes. And I've always thought that could be afterward, could be at Pentecost. Because Peter tied that part of Joel 2 to Pentecost directly. Okay? Not the first part about the first month, but afterward is the part that he quoted. And there you did have people speaking in other languages. And Peter thought this was the beginning of the day of the Lord and the end times. He thought the time had come. Christ was coming back. The day of the Lord was upon them. Day of darkness, a day of gloominess, a day spoken of throughout the prophecies of coming at the end time. And he says, This is the great and notable day of the Lord. You know what that makes Peter? That makes Peter a false prophet. What he said was not true. Now, the first part may have been part of the fulfillment of Joel. But it was not the end of the age, and the day of the Lord did not come after this. In fact, here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and it hasn't come yet. So he was wrong. (coughs) What are you going to do with that? Well, there have been people who were part of the Church of God who proclaimed that Herbert Armstrong was a false prophet because he thought Christ was coming back and the day of the Lord would be 1972 to 75 and that Christ would return in 1975. All he was doing is the same thing Peter was. He was looking at events. He was looking at the 19-year time cycles and it seemed to appear that all these things would happen in that time frame to him. Now, Herbert Armstrong preached an awful lot of truth, did he not? We're here primarily because of what God revealed to him and that he published. And some of us weren't there then who are here today, but you read it and heard about it. And it's what... He knew what God had revealed to him that started the end-time, end-time church. He did not realize that from the time he began to be converted until the real day of the Lord was going to be, I think, a hundred years. Maybe I'm a false prophet too. I speak to you an awful lot of truth, but there've been I've been wondering all along since this knowledge that we understand about the end times first came and where Jerusalem and Zion and all this is, (coughs) from the first year that that was revealed, I anticipated every year this is it. I was hoping. (coughs) here we are in the 25th year since. And I've had someone call me a false prophet already. Not just one, more than that. Some around here and some elsewhere. Because I'm trying to understand just when this is coming down. Now we see end time events occurring, don't we? (coughs) We see plagues and pestilence in our own land. We see riots that are going to lead toward civil war and war among our leaders, as as Jeremiah 50 and 51 say. And there'll be violence in the land. So this is right on the heels of not quite being let up from the virus. And now they're calling it a bacteria and saying it wasn't a virus at all. And that aspirin would fix it. Because the blood was clotting. So, whatever. But it's being used to destroy the economy of the nation and the world so they can bring in the New World Order. And now they're paying some of these rioters to keep it going in order to create martial law and lock us down again because that's what martial law does. There are already 9 o'clock p.m. curfews. That's lockdown in some of our cities over the last four days. I believe we're there now. I have no doubt about it, really. It's just going to get worse and worse. Remember Leviticus 26? And if you still don't repent, I'll make it seven times worse. And if you still don't repent, I'll make it seven times worse. So it begins at a certain level. And it gets worse. And it gets worse. Until you are destroyed, he says. But Peter preached to the disciples, all the followers, and the apostles... And all of Jerusalem who had come a-running, that the day of the Lord was upon them. Now, let's examine that for a moment. Peter had been called to be the physical head of the church under Christ as an apostle, right? And what Peter said here in this sermon became part of the Bible, Right? God honored what Peter said, even though Peter was wrong in assessing the timing. Because Christ did not tell the disciples that he was not coming back in their day and age before they died. And they all believed. Not just this day, but when Peter said it, they thought Christ's return was imminent. The days of darkness and blackness were there. And it didn't turn out that way. But they all still thought that it would happen in their lifetimes. And later on here, I can show you scriptures in which they referred to all these things as if they still were imminent. That we had a false alarm in Acts 2 back there, but we know that it's still going to be in our lifetime. Christ didn't lie to them. He just never told them. They weren't false prophets. They were true prophets of God. And they're going to be over the twelve tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. Do you think God's going to put a false prophet in there over one of the tribes of Israel? No, I don't think that's the case. Peter was a true prophet. And what he said does equate to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. But the timing he got wrong. Getting the timing wrong does not a false prophet make. It didn't Peter. It didn't James or Paul or John. And it didn't Herbert Armstrong. And it didn't me either, for that matter. The truth of God is what we're converted to, not timing or not years. These people were converted to truth. And they continued in the Apostles' Doctrine, it says, on down in uh, chapter 2, verse 42. So it was the doctrine and the truth through the Holy Spirit that they were converted to. So Peter was telling the truth. He had the timing wrong. Let's not tar and feather him because God included it in the Bible And his analogy coinciding with Acts 2 was certainly valid. So timing is not necessarily an integral part of prophecy. And yet God gives us certain clues to timing, like the leaves coming on the trees and watch and know that the time is near here at the end. And he says this generation will not pass that was called in this age, until these things have come to pass. So, we know it is near. And I've worked with years and numbers, and I think have a pretty good grasp of the time this will happen. But I don't know it for absolute sure, do I? No. Not for sure. But I know for sure when the Sabbath is, I know when the holy days are, I know how God's heavenly calendar works. I know by your fruits that you have the Spirit of God and are trying to follow Him the best you can. There are a lot of things I know to be true. And you know to be true. There will be a resurrection. Christ will return. Exactly when? We'll see. We can speculate, but we don't know. For sure. But we do know that we're getting old and that we see the leaves on the trees of the end time being exhibited right now in our own land. So it's very close. I think we'll see it clearer as time goes on. So here was when the Holy Spirit was offered. And we we just read that... It is a covenant of the Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit, and then this is when the Holy Spirit came, and that's when the first fruits of the Spirit began, with some exceptions from the Old Testament, which we shall see. A very few of them who were given the Spirit of God. Hebrews eleven uh, shows that that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, uh, various ones, Rahab, Gideon, David, were some of those who will be in the first resurrection, but they will not precede us. They'll be resurrected the same time we are, because they're part of the first fruits. Grafted in from earlier, God can bring them forward to the new covenant. And he is only doing that with a very few. Maybe most of which are mentioned in Hebrews 11. He does open it there for some more than those names he gave. But he said, they will be in the same resurrection we will. Now, what would, did Paul mean by that? He was of the first fruits. He was speaking to first fruits. And he said, they will be among us, then the first fruits. So, we know from that that those leaders of the Old Testament are part of the first fruits. There's a partial definition so far. Now, let's see who else might be candidates. Let's go to Romans 11. Now, Paul was the apostle appointed to the Gentiles. He preached both to Israel and to the Gentiles, but the one in charge of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he's talking, uh, verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I'm declaring my office, uh, and I hope that you can follow my example, and some of you might be saved. I'm paraphrasing. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life? From the dead. The whole world is headed toward death, unless at some time God offers them salvation. And we know from other scriptures that will come in the millennium and the great white throne judgment, so that they can be brought back from being spiritually dead. Now, notice verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, Israel was declared the holy first fruits in Leviticus 23. And then they betrayed and sinned and were cast out or divorced. Now we have a firstfruits of the Spirit, as James, told, as James told us. And that's to whom Paul is referring. Uh, salvation or even physical blessing of the old covenant was never offered to the Gentiles. Some of the mixed multitude came along and were part of physical Israel, but it was offered to Israel there at Sinai, not to the Gentile nations, okay? So if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. Now God has said many times, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So it was offered first, the Holy Spirit, the new covenant, the first fruits to those who were the disciples of Christ and the men of Jerusalem and Jews and Israelites who had come from other areas now Paul is expanding that Jew first now to the Gentile so if you can be part of the first fruit and be holy the whole lump is holy the whole church should become holy Who's the root? Christ. He's holy. And his branches, we are. He showed us that in John 14 through 16. He's the vine, we're the branches. He's the root of the whole thing, the foundation of the whole thing. Now, some of the branches be broken off. Some fail. Some are on stony ground. Some are among the weeds, whatever. If some of the natural branches be broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. And with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So, here Christ is pictured as the olive tree. He's the root of it. And the Jews and the Israelites who had been offered salvation were the branches. Now, if some of those branches get broken off and separated, what happens... As he says there in John, they wither and die. So they're not part of the olive tree anymore. He uses an olive tree, by the way, as an analogy of the two witnesses and the seven churches being fed by them. Or branches of the olive tree. So he says if some get broken off, they're going to be replaced. Okay? Okay. Boast not against the branches, but if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root you. Do the branches keep a tree alive? You can break branches off, it'll still live. Cut the root off, it dies. So Christ is the root. He's the foundation. You will say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Now, if you're a Gentile, you might say that. Well, those branches were broken off, now I want it. That's a logical conclusion, isn't it? Doesn't that make sense? Especially if you're a Gentile. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Everyone should fear before God. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare not you. Well, the, the natural branches didn't qualify some of them. They got broken off. They dried up. They died. Now if God reaches out and offers it to you, don't get vain. Don't get puffed up about it. Be humble that God would select you to be a part of the kingdom of God and of the tree of life. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. On them which got broken off or fell severity. But toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. When you take think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. Because if God does graft you in, you have to produce. If you don't produce, you'll be cut off like they were. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. If they repent, they can be re-added. Paul kicks a man out of the church for sin And he grafted him back in when he repented. He turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He wasn't God's anymore. He was Satan's. And when he repented, he became God's again. So that's what Paul's saying here. So he offers salvation here to the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? In Corinthians, Paul called the church in Corinth the first fruits of Corinth. Now, we're going to get back here in a little bit to Revelation 11 if I hurry. I mean, 7 and 14. And we're going to find there that the firstfruits have to be Of the twelve tribes of Israel. And yet Paul called the people of Corinth. Who were not Israelites. They were Gentiles. First fruits. So how are we going to put this together down there. When we get to Revelation. How does this fit? How does it work? We are beginning some clues along here. And here we have one. He's speaking to these people. Who are grafted in and become spiritual Israelites. And yet physically. By blood. They are Gentiles. But they're included in the first fruits of the Spirit. All right, we better get to Revelation 7 then. Before I run out of time, we have two accounts about the first fruits. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and chapter 14. Let's introduce this one first. In chapter 6, he's talking about the seals being released. And he says in verse... uh, Wait a minute, where where did I want to pick this up? Yeah, in 7, but verse 3. He says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So this is an end time book, and is speaking of the servants of God in the end time. Okay? Seal the servants of God in their foreheads. So, the earth is about to be hurt. All these different seals and plagues are about to be released. Day of the Lord time. And he's finishing sealing. Now, Paul talked about sealing, and I don't have time to go in that today, but he spoke of people who were in the church as being sealed before this, in the early New Testament church. Now he's talking about people who were here just before the big trouble comes. So some were sealed back then that Paul refers to, and some are sealed at the end until you get everyone that God wants sealed sealed. Now some of those were from the Old Testament, a few. who will be in the first resurrection, it says. Won't precede us. They'll be there at the same time. So it includes Hebrews 11. It includes the early New Testament church in any sense then, who were sealed earlier, and then the final sealing comes right here, from now until this happens, the very last ones. So he says, don't don't let this happen until these are sealed. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So, Paul spoke of some sealed, before John wrote this, already sealed. Hebrews 11 speaks of some sealed. Now, it says that the total that are sealed are 144,000. And it says they are of the tribes of the children of Israel. I'm going to show you in a few minutes in Revelation 14, that it says of the 144,000, these are the first. First fruits no more no less doesn't say it in chapter 7 but it says it shortly and i want to lay that on you before we get there because when it says these are 144,000 of the tribes of the children of israel remember where we've just been in romans 11 where he said gentiles will be grafted in and they will be first fruits Paul called Gentiles at Corinth firstfruits. Rahab was not an Israelite. She's a firstfruit, a repentant harlot, if you will. Well, how can they all be the children of Israel if those other scriptures include Gentiles and others? And Rahab was not a virgin either, as a harlot, okay? Okay. And she wasn't a man either. She was a woman. Well, people will tell you these have to be 144,000 Israelite men who are virgins. Now, would you like to go on a trip right now and round those up? I don't think you will find anyone, anyone probably, that fits all of those things on a physical basis. These are the first fruits of the Spirit. When Gentiles repent, they receive the Spirit and they become spiritual Israelites. So when it says 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel, Paul just told us Gentiles are grafted into the root. And I didn't go to the scripture that says Christ is the first of the first fruits. And later, those at his coming. He was the first of the firstfruits. And he's going to add another 144,000, not including himself, of all nations and all tribes and of all peoples. And he even includes women, if you're sexist. Rahab, Sarah, Rebecca. They're all going to be firstfruits. So it ain't all men. We have to understand Revelation 7 as a spiritual delineation, not physical. The church is spiritual, not just a physical blood. So, the number sealed was 144,000. And then it mentions the different tribes. Of each one, uh, 12,000. So, 12 tribes times 12,000 is 144,000. That's all. Now, some of these were Gentiles that were grafted in and became spiritual Israelites. So, what has God done? Very simply, if some Israelites physically, were broken off. Gentiles were grafted in. They're part of the root. They're sustained by the root Christ. Therefore, they are put within a tribe of spiritual Israel. God might convert a black man, a yellow man, and put him in the tribe of Reuben, or in the tribe of Simeon, or in the tribe of Zebulun, as a spiritual delineation. Just as he takes some of the brothers who were the twelve apostles who were brothers physically and puts them over a spiritual tribe that they were not in physically. There weren't enough of the twelve to go around to twelve tribes and some of them were brothers. It's that simple. It is a spiritual nomination or delineation Or assignment that God gives. So the apostles, some of them were put in a tribe they were not physically of. Some Israelites may be put in a tribe that they were not physically of. You know what? If I'm there, physically speaking, I probably got to be in about four of these plus a Gentile. So maybe I'm in five tribes. No, I'm just one. I can't be in five tribes. But I got all kinds of different physical blood in me, and so do you, probably. Is there a pure Israelite anywhere on earth? That would be awfully rare. As much as they intermarried in the Old Testament, as much as they've intermarried in the New Testament, as much as races have mixed and mixed and mingled, not a chance there's 144,000 pure blood Israelites. So it has to be spiritually discerned even by the leaders of the tribes and it says they are men in another place that's in 14 I guess but we already know that Rachel and Rebecca and Rahab and others are going to be first fruits anybody who was converted and baptized and hangs on of all those women who were in the early New Testament church They're going to be first fruits. Mary was there, Christ's mother. In Acts 2, I expect she's going to be there. (laughs) Catholics think she's already in heaven, but no. She'll be one of the first fruits, I'm sure. Now, people try to say that the first fruits include the great multitude, or the great white throne judgment, in the first fruits, or in the first resurrection. Can't be. Can't be. Notice he says, seal these and then turn loose the end time events. Then he says, after this, later on, further down the road, behold, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and all kindreds, and all peoples, and all tongues, Israelites, Gentiles, all nations stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Daniel tells us there will only be a hundred million survive the seven last plagues. And yet here you have an innumerable multitude beyond counting. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. So, these people are people who will respond to God. Now, you have the first resurrection, which is the better resurrection, right? Spoken of is that. Then in Revelation 20, it speaks of a general resurrection, where all kinds of people come up in that resurrection and are offered salvation. That's when these come up. A great multitude. And the angels stood about the throne and fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Now, I can tell you people who are converted who will say they're part of the first resurrection. All right, now here's a question asked. Let's see if it answers it. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The whole world, other than a few people in the church at Zion, go into the great tribulation. Out of that, far less than 10% of the current population of the world survive that and go into the millennium. But if this is those which died in the great tribulation, there will be several billion of them, innumerable. They won't be offered salvation until they're resurrected in the great white throne judgment, the eighth great day of the feast, is what this innumerable multitude is. It's of all nations and all kindreds and all people and all tongues who stand before the throne to be what? Judged. Judgment is now on you and me. Right? We've been called. Our judgment is now. Our resurrection will be the first resurrection. The better one. And it's only open... To a few. That's all. Ultimately, 144,000 will be sealed and be part of it. So, these are people who have not yet been offered salvation. Now, he says they stand before the throne to be judged. You and I will never stand there. Do we realize that? You and I will never stand before the throne of God to be judged. We are now being judged. And when that resurrection occurs, He's not coming down to open the books and have us sit before Him and judge us as sheep or goats. When that resurrection occurs, we'll either rise off the ground or we won't. We'll either rise out of the grave or we won't. Because judgment has already been rendered in our case. And we have been forgiven and erased. These people stand before the throne to be judged. Now, your judgment didn't occur in one minute, did it? When he says we are being judged now, it means that once we're converted, however long, many long years we live after that, our judgment is occurring So that by the time we die or are changed at the end, we'll either be in or we'll be out. So we don't have to stand before the throne. We'll ascend to the throne. We rise to meet him in the air and go to the throne. So these are which came out of tribulation. How? By a resurrection. By the res- resurrection of Revelation 20. Let's look at that real quickly. I'm going over time. That's okay. Don't worry about it. It's Pentecost. Verse 11. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go. He had the, a resurrection. and Satan is, is bound a thousand years. And then he's going to be released for a little while. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark, upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. (coughs) So these are in the first resurrection. The rest of the dead, now these are with Christ, the thrones, everything's there. The first resurrection's already occurred. The rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The rest of them are there for another thousand years. So if they died in the tribulation, we were resurrected when Christ came the first time. Inner part of his throne and his retinue and part of the bride of Christ. And the rest don't live until it's over. Then Satan is uh, loosed and he uh, does his thing. And verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. (coughs) There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened. And another book opened, the book of life. (coughs) Which books? The books of the Bible. That's what you're judged by. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And then it shows. (coughs) Third resurrection after that. But these people come out of the resurrection in the second or out of the tribulation in the second resurrection they're not in the first one and they stand before the throne and are judged for a hundred years apparently now let's go to 14 we are going to finish this and I looked and lo a lamb stood on Mount Zion And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. The rest had the mark of the beast written in theirs. These had the name of God written. Sealed in the forehead. 144,000. And I've heard a voice and singing and so on. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. A new song. Where do we know about that? From Revelation 2 and 3 where only those who are redeemed and offered to sit with God in His throne can sing that song. So nobody can sing the new song according to Revelation 2 and 3, but those who are part of the kingdom of God at that time. So the 144,000 are singing the new song before the throne. That's all that's there. That's all that can know the song. And before the four beasts of the elders, and no man could learn that song except the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. The only ones before the throne of God are these 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. People go to the guests at the wedding and say, well, that must be that innumerable multitude. No, it's not. I can show you, I don't have time to go there today, I did it in the series on how exclusive is the church, that we are actually the guests who were invited. And if we had holy robes, then we were also made part of the bride. There's only 144,000 there before the throne that can sing this song. And they're redeemed from the earth. No one else was. These are they which were not defiled with women. Does that mean they were physical virgins? It says they're virgins. Paul called, oh, it wasn't first fruits Paul called the people at Corinth. He called them virgins. He called the people of the city of Corinth in the church virgins. That was probably the most depraved, sexually immoral city on earth. And those people who were converted out of that were not physical virgins. These are spiritual virgins cleansed and purified by the water of the Word and the Holy Spirit. Not defiled with women is a spiritual thing. Not defiled with the religions of Satan. They repented of that. They became spiritual virgins of Christ. It says in the, all through the prophecies the virgin will travail and bring forth. How many people who have been called in the greater church of God in the early New Testament times and now were physical virgins? Very few. Peter led about a wife, Paul said. He was not a virgin. Or he had an awful upset wife. What? Okay? So those men were not physical virgins. Paul apparently had been married and wasn't. And he said the other apostles lead about a wife. And they're to be part of the 144,000 as the heads of those tribes. And they weren't physical virgins. So we need to get it to our heads. <clears throat> from many different standpoints, that this is a spiritual designation. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's his bride. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So here you have first fruits limited to the 144,000 that cannot include the great multitude it includes those of Hebrews 11 who were firstfruits of the spirit of the early church and of the end time church is all that it includes the great multitude are not firstfruits and the firstfruits are in the first resurrection the better resurrection those come in the second resurrection and they'll be part of the kingdom of God if they are judged worthy after being living a human life. But they won't be bride. They'll be the children. We'll be the bride. And I can go to Revelation 21, and it shows the heavenly Jerusalem coming down, and it has the same dimensions, 144,000, 12,000. Thousand at each gate, 144,000. And he said, I'll show you the bride. And then he showed him the holy city coming down, comprised of 144,000, not including an innumerable multitude. I think we're beginning to get the picture. These are the first fruits. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They've been forgiven. They've been transformed. Their spirit. They have no sin. I saw another angel fly, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying, Fear God and give glory. Well, if that innumerable multitude were already changed, why do you send somebody out to preach the truth to them? No, they've just been resurrected. They came through the tribulation via resurrection, Revelation 20, and now have the truth preached to them. And then it talks about Babylon falling twice. uh, Still human beings. Anyway. Anyway. He later calls them, in verse 12, the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, their works will continue and follow them, and then they'll be judged, and they can be part of the kingdom of God. And that's what the millennium and the great white throne judgment are, is that opportunity for people who have never had one. But in this life, until the day of the Lord... The first fruits includes everyone converted from Adam until the day of the Lord, and they will be limited to 144,000 first fruits. That's all. You are in a very, very important and a unique situation, having been called now and offered a better resurrection an opportunity. This day represents, by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Bride of Christ, by that Spirit, so that we can begin to grow to qualify as His Bride. This is the engagement. Passover forgave our sins so that we could be worthy of being considered a candidate for the Bride. Pentecost gives us the Holy Spirit where we become espoused to Christ. If we die or are changed at the Feast of Trumpets, it's only 144,000 total. No more, no less in the first resurrection. And they rise to meet him and go and get married to him. Feast of Trumpets represents their resurrection of the firstfruits. Then the Day of Atonement pictures becoming at one with Christ because it's the marriage of the Lamb to His bride on the sea of glass at the throne of God. We do go to heaven for a little while to get married. So, Pentecost is our espousal. Trumpets is our resurrection. And our change... spirit so that Christ can marry like kind. He can't marry us like we are. He's not going to have a sinful bride. So, he's going to transform her into spirit and will stand before the throne with no guile and with no sin and be perfect. The perfect bride. And then descend from heaven with the Father and the Son. To rule on the earth with all these children who will come later, having come out of tribulation, either living on into the millennium or resurrected, one of the two. So three holy days represent us and us alone. The beginning, Passover, represent everybody. Christ's sacrifice for the whole world. Then three holy days, which represent us, the bride, the 144,000. Then the last two Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day represent the great multitude who will be offered salvation at that time and be judged before the throne of God. So this day is the first day in the cycle of the Holy Days that pertains only to you and me. We should be humbled by that and thank God That he's called us now because a lot of people on this earth think they're going to be part of the bride of Christ. Methodists and Baptists and all kinds of people, and they don't have a clue what they're talking about. But you do, and you have the opportunity. Ancient Israel was offered marriage, and they blew it, and they no longer count. He narrowed it down in the New Testament to 144,000 who will become and comprise the bride. The first fruits. No more and no less. And if we are broken off or don't endure to the end, we will be replaced. And that's what the parable of the wedding supper is about. If we come unholy, undressed, will be kicked out and others invited in to make the number complete, to make the number perfect. Twelve is a number of completeness. Twelve times twelve is completeness to perfection. And that's how many will be the bride of Christ. You and I have the opportunity. Let's not be like our fathers and blow it. Let's push on through with confidence and hope and not shrink back, but in faith move forward to the kingdom of God.